Bible fit together like a book, right? Uh, which makes sense because the Bible is a, it's a book. It's a big book. It's, it's one book and everything goes together. Everything flows from beginning to end. There is a beginning. The conflict is introduced. Um, after the conflict is introduced, there's the, the period of overcoming where God is taking steps to defeat what? What is God's main enemy in the Bible? God's enemy presented at the very beginning of the story was is death. Um, people sinned against him. As a consequence for people's sin, people must die. They are unrighteous. Every intention of our hearts is selfish. It's wicked all the time. And so when we are in charge of things, like we saw in Genesis chapter 6, the world is given over to violence and ultimately destruction. And so God, he removes wickedness. He removes evil. It is just for him to remove evil. It is good for him to remove evil because evil will destroy everything, right? So God removes evil in the flood. And then after the flood, Noah and his family land on land because that's where you land. That's why we call it landing, okay? Uh, So there's your grammar lesson for today, your English lesson, landing. Um, Noah and his family land And God makes them a promise. What was that promise? He promises, I will never again curse the ground, even though people are wicked, even though people sin, even though though people are evil, even though they cause violence. God says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, and I will never again destroy every living thing like I have done, even though people are wicked, even though people are evil. God takes it upon himself to be the hero of the story, the singular story, to defeat death on behalf of people, even though people are evil. Then he proves himself at Babel, right? People are going down the same path they did in Genesis chapter 6. They're being selfish and wicked. They're building a city and a tower for themselves to create a name for themselves, and God intervenes. He stops them, right? Confuses their languages, and scatters them. And then God chooses a man from a pagan city, a pagan nation, where they worship many gods, but the chief among those gods is the moon god, the god that Abraham most likely worshipped before God chose him and said, Abraham, I want you to leave your family and your idols and your land, and I'm going to take you to another land, and I am going to be your god. So he chooses a man named Abraham. He chooses Abraham for this purpose. This is Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15, so that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. This is now God's response to people. Um, When people are in rebellion against him, uh, when people are worshiping false gods, when people are being selfish, after Genesis 6, after the flood, After Noah and his family land in Genesis chapter 8, God now says, I am going to intervene. I'm never going to let the world get so bad that it will be destroyed. And now he chooses the nation of Israel. So we see our chart up here. We had the fall. We had the flood. We had Babel where God proved himself. And he chose Abraham advancing against death. And now he's choosing Israel. Let me ask this question to you. God is all-powerful. We say he's all-powerful. We say he is all-good. 
we say he can do anything, um, why would God choose the nation of Israel? Why would he choose a nation at all? Why would he need to do that? God didn't need to choose a people. Right. But he chose to anyway. And so we are going to ask, like, why did God choose Israel? Uh, We read in Jeremiah chapter 33 that God formed the world in order to establish it, right? So just creation, having a neat and tidy earth where nothing was wrong and, and everything just looked perfect all the time, that was never God's goal. He formed it, yes, but he formed it in order to establish it, in order to build it up, in order to elevate it, okay? In Second Peter chapter 3, we read that God is not slow, as some count slowness. Remember, we asked this question, why is God taking all of this time? Why is he taking all of these chapters in the story in order to defeat death when he could have just not even introduced death in the first place? There's something about this process that God wants us to know. In Second Peter chapter 3, Peter says, God is not slow to accomplish his promise, as some consider slowness. Instead, instead of it being like slowness, like God is taking too long, God is being patient. And he's being patient toward people, toward humanity, because he does not desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Like, that is the reason God is taking all this time. If he were to just deal with death in one fell swoop, it would just be the flood all over again. And instead of saving a family out of it, he would just do away with everything and just form a new creation that would never be established. Okay, it would just it would just it would just be. And so God is patient toward us. It is for our good that he doesn't destroy all evil all at once, because if he did that there would be no hope for us. And God God is patient toward us. He cares for people. So he chooses a person, Abraham, to call into worship, right? He promises Abraham many children, and he promises that his descendants will inherit the land of Canaan. That's Genesis chapters 12 and chapters and and 15. And when God makes this promise, he is essentially saying, I am going to teach people how how to pursue righteousness, not a righteousness that is of us, but that comes from God, right? God himself is going to teach people how to to love justice and to do mercy. God himself is going to do this so that even though our hearts are wicked, even though we are selfish and entitled by nature, God is going to take us and establish us, humanity, he is not steamrolling us. Uh, he is not interested in leaving us behind as he could just easily you know, accomplish what he wants to do. He wants to bring us with him. His patience and his slowness is for our sake, for humanity's sake. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he tells us why he does not choose Israel uh, and he tells us why he does. Okay, he gives us both answers in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So I want to read this to you. 
This is chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. When the Lord, your God, brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them or show no favor to them. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me and serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. Now what stands out to you about what God is instructing Israel to do once Israel enters the promised land? Because we've been following the story, right? There's been a lot of talk about uh, peace and justice being done and about God being on humanity's side. And then when God finally chooses a nation, he brings them to the border of Canaan and he says, kill them all, take them out, destroy all their stuff. No mercy. Do you sense, do you sense what might seem like a contradiction here in what God is doing? So we think back to Genesis chapter 6, right? When the intent of the human heart was only wicked all the time and the just thing for God to do was remove evil from the world. What God did was just. Is it just for God to instruct Israel to go in and wage a holy war against the Canaanites um, and to destroy all of their things? Do you think this is just for God to do? Um, In Genesis chapter 15, uh, God brought Abraham to Canaan. And he tells Abraham to, it's, it's like that scene from The Lion King where Mufasa is talking to Simba and he's like, everything the light touches that is, you know, that's their kingdom. It will be yours, you know. That's, okay, so God, speaking to Abraham, shows Abraham the land of Canaan, and he said, this is the land that your descendants are going to inherit. Abraham goes, how can I know for sure that this is going to be true? I know what I'm hearing, but, but God, can you help me out here, right? So God uh, goes through the ceremony, makes an official covenant with, with Abraham, And he tells Abraham, look, Abraham, you are not going to inherit this land. It will not be your land. Uh, You will live a good life. Uh, You will die happy. You will die in your old age, like God tells him this. So Abraham's going to have a good life. But then he tells Abraham, but I'm going to wait for 400 years with your descendants in captivity in a foreign nation. We know that's Egypt now, right? He says, I'm going to wait 400 years before I bring them back and instruct them to take the land of, of Canaan. Do you know why God waited 400 years? It's in Genesis chapter 15. He waited 400 years so that the iniquity, this is our word of the day, you know what iniquity means? Okay, we say sin. All right, so you know what that is? Sin, that's iniquity, so that the iniquity, the wrongdoing, the hard-heartedness of the Amorites, they're referring to the people in the land of Canaan, 
until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, until it grows to fruition, right? You know what fruition means? We know this word. We're just going to have all sorts, all sorts of English today. This is awesome. Land, uh, iniquity, fruition, hippopotamonostrosicodaliophobia. You guys know that one? That one's, that one's the fear of long words. That's what it is. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Nice. You guys get 100. You guys get 100 on your test today. That's what I'm talking about. All right, so their iniquity grows to fruition. God is waiting until they become an absolutely evil people, until they earn his wrath. And instead of allowing them to spread that to the rest of the world so that, what, God can keep his promise in Genesis chapter 8, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. I will never again destroy all living things as I have done. Now he says, okay, this has become a truly like evil people. I gave them time to do this. They have proved that they are wicked. They are only evil all the time. Their selfishness, their entitlement is leading the land into, into violence like it did for all of humanity in Genesis chapter 6. And so Israel, go. What do you think caused this nation to the, the Canaanite nations, I should say, because there's seven of them according to the text, right? What do you think caused them to become so wicked. Like in verse 5, God says, thus you shall do to them, tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. That's idols, right? Um, this is, a, this is a, a kind of worship that's going on in Canaan. And they're not worshiping the true God. They're, they're worshiping other, like, false gods, right? So there's false worship going on. Um, why do people worship false, false gods? Why do people worship uh, idols? Why do people invent gods for themselves? Let me, let me bring it a little bit closer to home. Why do many Christians um, create a God in their image instead of just trying to know who God really is and then they worship God as they want Him to be rather than as He actually is? Because a lot of Christians do this too, right? Why do people do this? Why do we create false gods? And if I create gods that control the tides, like a moon god that control the tides and uh, that bring the seasons like springtime and the harvest and, and help with human fertility and I create gods for that and I, I'm somehow uh, convinced that these gods can actually do something and I'm worshiping them. My whole, my whole, motivation, my whole motivation for worshiping something is so that I can get something for me, right? But this is the difference between like, like true worship and false worship, there's, there's one simple difference that, that you can pick out pretty easily. If people are worshiping a God in order to gain something for themselves, that's false worship. That subjects, that subjects God or some gods to, to me and who I am. And so people who go to church expecting like, I am here, so that my life can be better. If I go to church for that reason, like so that I can get something out of it, and then like it doesn't work out because uh, I'm not there to worship the actual God anyway. I'm there to get something for myself, which means I'm my God, right? And it doesn't work out for me. And then I leave the church saying, Christianity doesn't work, right? The church doesn't, doesn't work for me. Um, that is a sign of like false worship. Self-worship is what it is. Self-righteousness, entitlement, selfishness. And if I am entitled and if I am selfish in life, ultimately I will end up mistreating other people 
And if society is encouraging this, that ultimately leads to, to violence and it leads to wars and it leads to destruction. And God is like, Israel, don't have anything to do with that. Don't let those nations lead you astray. Tear down their false idols. Why? Because that's what's good for the entire world. When we worship the true God who instructs us toward justice and righteousness and mercy and selflessness, this works out for the good of the whole world. And that's what God is interested in. Verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord. God has set apart Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He's starting with one nation. He's taking His time. He's being patient with us, right? The Lord did not set His love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. You weren't the greatest among people. You didn't have a higher population. You weren't stronger. Instead, you were the fewest of all peoples. God's going to start with a small nation so the people don't get confused thinking, oh, Israel was so big and so smart and they, they were capable of doing it. No, Israel was not capable of becoming a world power, but God will make them one because He wants the glory. He wants it to be known that He did this. Look, because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, that would be Abraham. That would be Noah, their forefathers. The promise not to destroy the earth Again, the promise never to curse the ground again on account of human sin. He's choosing Israel so that they will know He loved them and that He keeps His promises. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God. Faithful to what? His own promises, His own words. Who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation of those who love Him, and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate Him to their faces. He didn't do that in Genesis 6, and what was the consequence? Everything had to go, right? Because the whole world went into this violent, wicked state. But now, God is repaying those who hate Him to their faces. He will not delay with Him who hates God. He will repay Him to His face. And therefore, He tells Israel, Keep my commandments. These statutes, keep them. Why? He's given Israel a law, and he says, keep this law. And it wasn't to make Israel righteous, like keeping this law didn't give anyone eternal life, right? But instead, keeping the law was good for the world. It's by giving a law to a people that God would expand his peace and his justice in spite of human wickedness, in spite of human sin. And y'all, the gospel is about so much more than you just getting to heaven. Okay. Well, we're seeing the story so far. And like, like you've heard, like if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. You will get to a place called heaven at the end of your days on this earth. You'll go to one of two places, either hell or heaven, and that is true, but there's more to the story than that. God is saving the whole world. He is saving His creation. He is the hero of the story. And maybe you've wondered, like, why would it be important for me to, like, obey what God has said in the Bible? 
Well, the reason is, and there's only one reason we ask that question, right, is because by nature we are selfish and we are entitled and we want to look for reasons to do what we want to do. But God has given us a law, and it's not only for our good, right? It is for our good. It will help us to live a, a happy and uh, practically a, a prosperous and a, and a long life, generally speaking, right? The law does that. God promises it will do that. But it's good for the whole world. And we have a part to play. Now, here's the caveat. We don't really care about the law. Not really. Israel will prove this. All the time it's a nation, right? Because the people don't love God first and they don't care about his law and then God comes in and he disciplines the nation. Okay. But if we love God first, if we have a relationship with Jesus first, then we have a part here and now. You, even being young like you are, you have a part to play like in bringing peace and justice and mercy to this earth. And it begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it continues on as we learn to obey him, learn to put others first. And the two greatest commands in the whole law, Jesus said the whole law hinges on this, love God and love people. That, that's, a, that's selflessness. That's the opposite of the entitlement we see from worldly nations and, and worldly religions. And so having a relationship with Christ is important. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, man, Come talk to me, come talk to Jason or, or Abby or, or Katie or Miss Nicole about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. If, if you don't know what that means or you don't think you have a relationship with Jesus, like that's, that's where it begins and it will last forever. And we get to grow together in Christ, learning how to love justice and do mercy as we learn what God has said, as we learn His law. That's why David in the Psalms would say, I love the law of God. It taught him how to be a good king. So, so y'all, I pray that you come to love Jesus. And I pray that your lives are lived with, with purpose. For the good, not only of yourselves, but, but for the whole 